the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to the very first episode of our new podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So the premise of this podcast is simple. The world is a mess, from terrorism to nuclear weapons, trade wars, migration crises, and rogue regimes. Lots of us are looking at the news and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. On this podcast, we'll bring you the most interesting and knowledgeable people who will break it all down for us and help us make sense of the world one issue at a time. Today, we're talking about the growing threat posed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. We're going to do a lot of talking about what the hell is going on in Iran. And that's because there's a lot the hell going on in Iran. I mean, so like a week ago, Marine General Frank McKenzie, who's the commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, actually warned that an Iranian attack might be imminent. And lo and behold, a few days later, uh, some oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman blow up and it looks like Iran's behind them. Uh, We're sending additional troops. Even before that, we were sending 1,500 additional troops and now there might be more going. So uh, what the hell's going on, Danny? Well, one of the things I really want us to talk about today is, is, is whether Iran is just behaving defensively, whether, in fact, this is just an Iranian reaction to Donald Trump or John Bolton's aggression, or whether, in fact, this is part of an ongoing Iran strategy. We don't know. But a lot of people are suggesting that the drums of war are being heard in Washington, that Trump's maximum pressure campaign is, is, is driving the Iranians in the wrong direction. I think the Iranians' plan all along has been to wait out Donald Trump. They're watching American politics very closely in Tehran, just as we watch theirs. And uh, they think Donald Trump isn't up for re-election next year. I don't know whether the Donald is listening. So So to break it all down, we're joined by Fred Kagan. Uh, Fred is the director of AI's Critical Threats Program, which monitors and analyzes all things Iran. Uh, He's the author of The Surge in Iraq, which worked incredibly well. Uh, So he's a master military strategist, and he also serves with our military as an advisor in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's no one better to take apart the Iran question than Fred. So Fred, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. So Fred, the question of the hour, always our question of the hour. What the hell is going on in Iran? Is Iran behind these attacks that we saw in the Straits of Hormuz? They've been threatening the Straits forever. Are they the ones who were planting mines on the Japanese ship even when Prime Minister Abe was still visiting Tehran? How could you break this all down for us? Yeah, Danny, look, there's there are two actual options in the real world about how those attacks went down. One is that the Iranians did them. The other is that there's some incredibly complicated conspiracy going on in which the Saudis blew up their own boats or we blew up Saudi boats or something else was going on. Please, Fred, I think you're leaving out the possibility that Benjamin Netanyahu was involved somehow. Or the Israelis did it, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Or the Martians did it. Or some, some, so we have these two possibilities, which are the Iranians did it or somebody did it as part of an incredibly complicated conspiracy theory. The choice should be easy as to which one of those you think actually happened. Because as you said, the Iranians have been saying that they would do this. The commander in charge of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy has been saying that they would do this in precisely this scenario. So you have all of that. And then against that, you have a desire to believe in conspiracy theories and find some way to blame somebody else. So you know what this reminds me of? I.e. Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah, Donald Trump or Netanyahu or, yeah. or, or whoever you want to take the fall Mohammed for. Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah. Or the yeah. three of them together. Or all of them together, yeah. right. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the Russians and Ukraine. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, little Green Men. Remember that? You know, are the Russians actually in Crimea? Are they really Russians? They're not Russian soldiers. And, in, in, you know, in Ukraine, are they really Russians? Well, they're not wearing Russian uniforms. You know, really, who really knows, right? That is the crux of the Russian hybrid warfare strategy, is getting to the point where we say, well, who really knows, right? And just obfuscating the whole issue, even when there's absolutely no basis for confusion about it. So I think, yeah, uh, for sure, the Iranians did this. And then beyond that, we have to stop enabling this hybrid warfare strategy that the Iranians use and that the Russians use. But somehow, when the Russians do it, it's bad. When the Iranians do it, we think we still think apparently we need to kind of play along. So what is the message they're trying to send then? Why would they do this? So we, the President Trump has threatened military action if they, and, they, and the Trump administration actually – uh, did something that the Bush administration didn't do during the Iraq war, which is say, if you attack us by proxy, we're going to hold Tehran responsible. We're not just going to go after the proxy. So he's made a pretty clear uh, statement of policy that this could lead back to them. Why would they, if they don't want war with us, why would they tempt fate? And what were they, tr- and particularly what message were they trying to send when Abe was literally in Tehran when this happened, delivering a message from President Trump? So, you know, one of the problems that we have is we, we talk about Tehran as if it were a thing. But it isn't a thing. There are two major factions in Tehran. There's the one that matters, and then there's the one we talk to. So the one that matters is the supreme leader in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. The one we get to talk to is Rouhani and Zarif, the president and the foreign minister, who are actually sock puppets at this point when it comes to foreign policy. And in fact, Rouhani just complained publicly that he doesn't have much influence over these issues. And yet he's the guy that we're all desperate to talk to. And uh, doesn't get invited to meetings, and, well, caused Zarif, him to well, – right, that was Zarif, right. right. Yeah, doesn't get invited to, to key meetings, uh, meeting with Assad, and then he resigned and then – the, But we're like, no, Abe, no, Abe did meet with Khamenei. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. So we're trying to – they're trying to talk to Khamenei. Khamenei is not going to talk to us. Mm-hmm. But the issue is when we ask who who's sending what messages – so this is the IRGC sending messages. Uh, this is not Rouhani and Zarif. And the messages the IRGC is sending is what they've said all along on the one hand – if you try to get us down to zero, if you hurt our oil exports that badly, we will make it harder impossible for anybody to get oil through the strait. That's the first part of the message. Now, who's that message actually aimed at? It's not actually aimed at us. It's aimed at the Europeans primarily and the Japanese secondarily. Because we don't depend on oil going through the Strait of Hormuz the way we used to. We, we Because of the fracking revolution right. here, we are actually much more right. energy independent. So it's really the Europeans yeah. who are dependent on oil from that region. Exactly right. We're, we're a net ex- oil exporter, I believe, yes. at this point. So we don't need any of this oil, right? This is all the Europeans and the uh, uh, China and, and Japan and, and East Asia. And what the Iranians are trying to do – oh, in addition to that, I'm sorry. We don't trade with Iran. That was one thing that Obama didn't change. Is we, he didn't lift the restrictions on U.S. trade except in the very smallest areas for planes. The trade is with the Europeans. What the Iranians need to do is to split the Europeans from us. And I think they're trying to do that in two ways. One is they're trying to demonstrate the harm that they can bring to European economies by driving up the price of oil and all of that stuff. But the other thing they're trying to do, I think, is persuade the Europeans that this is 2003, that Donald Trump wants war and is trying to manufacture an excuse to go to war with Iran and that they need to not be you know, brought into this in, as a way to try to really split them from us in a deep political fashion. So that's great. I mean, I think that's a really – it's important analysis. It's not – It's not great. Yeah. Right. <laughs> great analysis is not a great situation. Right. You're right. <laughs> OK. That was a bad inflection. <laughs> 
You're Go, exactly Khamenei. Right. I know. Get to America. That's right. That's right. Go. Uh, no, you're totally right. But at the end of the day, the Europeans, while their rhetoric is obviously not helpful, while they, along with the entire Fourth Estate and the Democratic Party and you know lots and lots of other people we know, have lost their minds on the question of Donald Trump, they're not actually dumb about the intelligence. They know this is the Iranians, just as we know this is the Iranians. And that's going to hurt Iran's effort to split them off from us. The same thing happened, by the way, when the Iranians basically said, hey, Europe, if you don't give us the benefits of the JCPOA, this is about a month ago, then we're going to just, we're going to pull out. And the Europeans basically said, yeah, you do that, you're going to be in trouble. They really manned up. So does this strategy work? In principle, it shouldn't, because there are two separate issues involved in what the Europeans do, right? There's what European governments do, and then there's what European businesses do, which is what actually matters to the Iranians. And I think the likelihood that the Iranians are going to persuade European businesses that Iran is a good place to invest at this point, regardless of sanctions, is extremely low. So in practical terms, no, I don't think this is going to work. But I do think that we have two problems also. One is, look, The fact that people are prepared to engage in a discussion about whether the Iranians did this or not is evidence of how much of a problem there actually is in terms of a credibility gap and people being prepared to believe absolutely anything that Donald Trump or this administration says. And it's a real gap. It's a real problem. And you have, I'm certain, I can't prove this, I'm certain that Russians are helping with this as as well. You have various efforts are going to come in here always to undermine a belief that anything that we say is true, by the way, regardless of of who the president is. So that's a real thing. But the other thing we need to keep in mind is we are entering a phase of Europe that we've never seen before. So we have Britain fully engulfed in Brexit. We're going to have a new British prime minister. I'm not worried about where probably it's going to be Boris Johnson. I'm not worried about where he is on this issue. But I know where his attention is going to be, and it's not going to be on being tough on Iran. Macron is in a very increasingly strange place and having various domestic issues. But the biggest one is Angela Merkel will cease to be the Chancellor of Europe. I mean, Germany. <laughs> and Freudian slip. Intentional Freudian slip. <laughs> and that that's going to be a very big deal because it looks not only is she not going to be Chancellor, but it looks like her efforts to emplace a successor are failing. And so we're looking at possibly a completely different Germany from what we've seen before. And when you look at all of that, there's a lot of continuity that we've taken for granted that has come from a continuity of leadership in Europe that is going to change. And I think it would be very dangerous to take for granted that the European governments will continue to act in accordance with reality and their best interests in this case as we move into a new phase where you may see more harder left people come in. You may see people with different programs and in general just a sort of a collapse of the way Europe has been functioning. So that's the situation on the ground in Europe. Describe for our listeners – the situation that Donald Trump inherited with Iran because the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, was supposed to create bring Iran into the civilized world, change their behavior. They're going to be more integrated with us. There's going to be more trade and they're going to behave better. That was the principle behind it and the principle of all detente policies. Uh, how did detente with, uh, with Tehran work? Well, it worked about as well as it worked with the Soviet Union, I guess, um, in the sense that as some of us predicted – Uh, After the deal, the Iranians got much more aggressive in the region. They did divert um, resources that they got uh, through the deal to strengthening their ability to to play around in the region. Um, And we've seen their regional aggressions and regional activities only increase, which was entirely predictable because the price, one of the many prices of getting the deal for Obama 
was saying nothing whatever about Iranian regional activities in the deal mm -hmm. uh, and excluding that entirely from discussion. So that was a huge weakness of the deal all along. And we have had absolutely a boomerang effect uh, that Donald Trump inherited a situation where the Iranians were more aggressive. Walk us through a little bit about what that means in reality. What were they doing on the ground in these different countries? So they have moved into Syria on a scale that they've never been there before. And we have seen and reported on the deployment of conventional Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps units into Syria to fight for Assad, the movement of many, many tens of thousands of Iranian proxies, including from Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, as well as from Iraq and locally, and Lebanese Hezbollah, of course, into Syria fighting there. The expansion into Yemen, uh, where the Iranians have been working to provide more and more advanced missiles and guidance systems to the al-Houthis there. And those have been fired at shipping in the, in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait and also at targets in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. So we've had that expansion as well. And then, of course, in Iraq, we've also had a very significant expansion of Iranian influence. So the bottom line is that there is much more Iranian military power spread throughout the region now than there has ever been in the past. So the withdrawal from the JCPOA was understandable. You know, Donald Trump, I'm a man who keeps his promises, said he was going to rip up the JCPOA, ripped up the JCPOA. We know what the side effects were. On the other hand, the Iranians are now threatening to break out of the JCPOA, go beyond the limits on uh, on fissile material that, uh, that the JCPOA put in place and that they had heretofore adhered to. Was it a mistake to pull out, understanding that the JCPOA in and of itself wasn't a great deal and that it had all of this regional boomerang effect? Was it a bad idea to pull out of even this not so great deal? And in, and to add on to that, was what is more what is the broader strategy that changed the change in approach other than just withdrawal from the JCPOA? But what else is the Trump administration doing different? Is that it? Uh, is that what the maximum pressure is, or is there more of a strategy than simply pulling out? Well, look, I uh, I would not have pulled out of the deal at that time and in that way because I don't think that it was actually necessary to engage in a maximum pressure strategy to pull out of the deal, and I think it gave Iran certain rhetorical advantages. There's no need to relitigate that question, in, in my view. It doesn't matter. He did what he did, and we are where we are. And it was a terrible deal, and I, I'm certainly... You know, it, take that as given. Yeah, take that as, as given. The strategy, I have to be honest with you, it's not exactly clear to me what the objective is that we're pursuing with this strategy. The maximum pressure strategy... I think can be aimed at doing one of several things. It can be aimed at containing Iran as it is. It can be aimed at rolling back what the Iranians have, uh, or it can be aimed at overthrowing the Iranian regime in some way at some time. Of those, I think that it is currently aimed at rolling back, ideally through non-military means, by depriving the Iranians of the economic resources that they need to support and sustain their proxies and their activities around the region. And it is having that effect so far. And we have seen Hezbollah out there with tin cups and asking for money, um, which delights me. And Hamas is also out there uh, begging for money, which is great. And I think that that is a reasonable and intelligent objective for a maximum pressure strategy. I think the challenge is making sure that the strategy is sustainable, because I don't think that that kind of strategy is going to generate a fundamental change in Iranian behavior, except pursued over a long period of time. And I think the challenge that the administration has is figuring out what the sweet spot actually is of the most pressure they can put without having this escalate in various bad ways into scenarios that are not what we want to get into. Because the one thing that I'm confident of, and I apologize, Danny, for burying the lead on this, is Donald Trump does not want to go to war with Iran. Right. 
I'm quite confident no, that whatever else is going on, he that. doesn't want to go to war with Iran. Right. Though Ronald Reagan didn't want to go to war with the Soviet Correct. Union either. Uh, so having right. a having a and we didn't because in part because of the strategy that right. he implemented. So you did it. You had a great article in Commentary uh, recently, laying out uh, describing the victory strategy and in, in during the Cold War and how it would apply in a, in the case of Iran and what some of the similarities and some of the differences are. One is a victory strategy a good idea. Vis-a-vis Iran, the way it was in the, against the Soviet Union, and to what should that strategy look like, and what are some of the differences we're facing? I think the the victory strategy that Reagan pursued was exactly the right strategy for the time, and for the state in which the Soviet Union found itself. Uh, it was a state of decadence. It was three generations removed from the revolution. Its leaders had not grown up, even really influenced by the Second World War, and without. They just didn't have the revolutionary mindset and commitment that the earlier generations had had. And they recognized the weakness of the state and how vulnerable it was. And so when Reagan confronted them with the requirement to spend a lot of money to compete with our military buildup that they knew they didn't have, they tried to go another way. And so they opened up to society to try to fix some of their their problems. They opened up uh, freedom of the press and so forth. That led to an unexpected side effect for them, namely that people started basically rebelling and the nationalities, the Baltic states, the East European states started rebelling. And so why did the Soviet Union fall? It fell because its leader lost the will to kill. That was the key moment. It's usually why regimes like that fall. It's why the Shah fell. It's why the uh, Russian uh, Tsars fell. They lost the will to kill. And that speaks well for Gorbachev, the leader at the time, that at a certain point he... So the question, as we look at the Iranians, is do we think that it's likely that they would lose the will to kill, that this regime... No. Right. Wait, I'm answering that question. Yeah. No. Right. And and I agree with you because what a lot of people don't understand is we haven't even had a single generational turnover in Iran. And the guys who are running the IRGC now have been running the IRGC for decades, these very people... And they were the revolutionaries. Some of these guys were hostage takers because this was – they were young. The great thing about revolutions is a lot of upward mobility, right? So these guys were 20-somethings. They were commanding divisions on the battlefield in the Iran-Iraq war, these guys who are now running the IRGC. We have not yet seen a generational turnover and these guys believe in the revolution. And some of them have an apocalyptic vision. This all makes clear to us why people who think a victory strategy for Iran – isn't going to work because the the you know, the ingredients are different and you're going to end up baking a different cake. It, you also you also really nicely outlined. Okay, I'm going to have a bunch of metaphors here and analogies, and they're none of them going to go together. <laughs> you you kind of made it. You drew this picture of this balancing beam that 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 you know the the administration is walking, which is. How do you not be Iraq in the 1990s, right? Oh, no, no, you know, they're in a box, they're in a box. Oh, wait, the sanctions are completely collapsing, right? That's that's basically what you look at anytime you need to sustain over time a really, really tough sanctions regime. That was true with the Soviets. It was true with Iraq. It's going to be true with Iran, no matter what Donald Trump says. And at the same time, the Iranians are misbehaving, p- pushing outside of the, the, the strictures of the JCPOA, you know, as inadequate as we believe them to be. Okay. What do we do? How how do we win? And by the way, that question is is not just the key one from a sort of an intellectual wonky, we're all sitting around in the basement of AEI having this conversation way, but also because in the administration, we've got this divergence of views, right? We've got 
the president, who is the president, who does not want to go to war with the Iranians, but we've got a bunch of people who work for the president who perhaps have a different agenda, A, and B, who are slowly but surely, I believe, boxing him in. Well, I don't know about the I don't know about the intra-administration dynamics and who's yeah. doing what to whom. I think the the issue of the what do we do about this is is complicated. Look, on the one hand, we cannot allow the Iranians to disrupt the free flow of trade through the Strait of Hormuz or any maritime strait for that matter. And neither can we allow there to be any sort of moral equivalence between us imposing sanctions and then blowing things up and killing people. That's not an acceptable legal or appropriate response to sanctions. So as they take it into a kinetic place, as they make you know start making things blow up, we're in a different place and we have to deal with that and we have to work to deter it. I think at this level of escalation, what the Iranians are doing, it would be a better idea for the administration to go to the Europeans and say, look, we don't want to get into a war. We want to constrain and roll back the Iranians. And so what we need you guys to do is stop playing around with negotiating the agreements that they're sort of negotiating to circumvent sanctions. Stop giving the Iranians the the notion that there is some... Uh, way that they can get around this deal or get out of it and focus on helping us put the screws on them. And as long as you're doing that, then we will we will be as slow as we possibly can to engage in, in armed combat. That having been said, look, the Iranians go up an escalation ladder if we actually see, you know, Iranian ships directly ta- attacking, you know, we have to stop that. Um, and we're going to have to respond and we're going to have to retaliate militarily. But I think the, our first effort here should be to try to use this, the fact that the president doesn't want to go to war and that the Europeans above all want us not to go to war, to try to bring us together around a tougher sanctions regime. I think there's an opportunity to do that. But to, to your point, Danny, I think that the difference within the administration is not necessarily the president who doesn't want to go to war and some of his advisors who do want to go to war. The pr- difference is the pr- president who who wants to bring the regime to the negotiating table and advisors who want to bring the regime to collapse. Um, and they think that this strategy can achieve that. Is regime collapse likely a good or uh, one good? Well, I think it would be a good outcome. But is it a is it a viable option? Ask, answer both those questions. Is it a good idea for the Iranian regime to collapse? And is it can a victory strategy bring us to that point? Well, I think I find the second the second question easier to answer than the first one, which is I don't think that we're likely to get in the short term to regime collapse. I think this regime is much more stable and resilient than that, in fact. I also think that it's very problematic just to say anything is better than what we have. I think if you talk about just an explosion in Iran and then you have 80 million angry Iranians running around and IRGC and former regime guys running around doing all kinds of stuff, that that can end very badly for us. Now, it ends much worse for the regime. So, I mean, it's important to keep that in mind, that it's a, it's bad for us, it's a disaster for them at the top of the escalation ladder. But we need to be very careful about just deciding that yeah, we should just push them to collapse and whatever happens after that is somebody else's problem. I think if we've learned anything from the Middle East experience over the last two decades and even beyond that from the Soviet post-Soviet period in Afghanistan, just deciding that the regime can collapse and then we don't care anymore doesn't usually end very well for us. Well, it's not clear that the uh, that the uh, Reagan strategy that they ended up intending for the regime to collapse, right? I mean, when they went into this, they didn't think that the the Soviet Union would peacefully implode and that would be the end of uh, the Soviet Union, they were putting on a maximum pressure strategy to try and roll them back, right? 
Well, yeah, but with the but objective of, was always... of, of ultimately to, to cause something to happen that ultimately happened. And the only but, point I want to make there is... But in retrospect, it looks genius because fire, the Berlin Wall fell without a, without a shot fired. Sure. But, I mean, did, do you think anybody in the Reagan administration thought that in 1991, Gorbachev would lose the will and the, so the no. Berlin Wall would collapse the way it did? No. Yeah. And that was a unicorn. And the point yeah. of this is that as we imagine regime collapse scenarios, we should not imagine that that unicorn is going to come galloping across the field again. That's not likely the way you would have an Iranian regime collapse if, if and when you have one. And so we, that's why we need to think about this as a much messier, more complicated, ugly thing that we should maybe have a strategy for managing before we really launch ourselves down that path. Amen. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you so much, Fred. We really appreciate you coming on. I, yeah. I learned a lot, which, you know, is something, as Mark will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was a really fascinating discussion. And you don't seem to think that there's a strategy behind this. You seem to think that the administration doesn't hasn't thought this through and is just simply putting on the squeeze. And I seem to think that I think there's a little bit more of a strategy behind it. So it's funny, actually. I mean, weirdly, and I God knows I don't want to be quoted saying this. Well, I guess you will quote me. But okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Say it on a podcast, Danny. All right. Quote me saying this. But I actually think Donald Trump has more of a strategy than his advisors do. Mm-hmm. I think Donald Trump actually has uh, a plan here, which is I'm going to rip up the JCPOA. I'm going to put you within this vice. I'm going to keep cranking the screw and I'm going to make you, you know, cry uncle. And then when Sounds you good cry, to me. Right. And then when you cry, uncle, you're going to come to the table, just like Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. You're going to come to the table and you're going to talk to job. me. <laughs> you're going to come to the table <laughs> and talk to me and I'm going to do a better deal than – and I'm going to do a better deal than Barack Obama did. The problem for me is not the Donald Trump strategy, although I have a question about his ability to make a deal as anyone with eyes and ears does, but – the part two of this, which is the part that leads to to sort of regime collapse, which I think is the agenda of some other part of the administration. Well, I've, I mean, I, why would we not be in favor of regime collapse? Like, because we didn't want to go. But, but we had the same question with the Soviet Union. Would we not? Were we not against the Soviet Union collapse? The consequences of Soviet collapse could have been much more cataclysmic than anything to do with Iran. Because Fred has a great. I mean, I recommend everybody go to commentary and read Fred's article because he really lays out the differences and the similarities between the Soviet Union and Iran. But one of the differences between the Soviet Union and Iran is that the Soviet Union had tens of thousands of missiles pointed at the at American cities, and Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon yet. Um, so we actually do have a little bit more freedom of action, and the consequences of an Iranian collapse uh, are not as as cataclysmic as the potential colla- the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay, I wish Fred were still here because uh, because you, you're, you're totally right. I let him go too early, but that that's fine. But I don't. I think we're really looking at. Let me coin a phrase here: apples and oranges, and. Looking at Iran is not the same as looking at the Soviet Union after 70 years of soul-crushing communist dictatorship. This is, as Fred said, this is the revolutionary generation inside Iran. I also think that there are too many people in Washington. And remember, you know, we can talk about how many, what people think outside Washington and, you know, Iranian expat community in LA and the Shah. And we can talk about all that. That's all irrelevant. What we're really talking about here is the policy community. Too many people in the policy community think, oh yeah, you know, once these guys are gone, it'll just be kind of status quo ante. And the answer is no. If you were born the year of the Islamic revolution in Iran, you are now 40 years old. You've got kids who grew up under these guys. You were educated in this system. You are not necessarily a generation that was raised up understanding any of the things that Iranians understood beforehand. And 
there's a lot of power spread around with a lot of people with weapons inside Iran as well. I just, you know, it is absolutely not persuasive to say that anything is better than what we have now. I think that in Iran, I can make the case there are things that are worse. Well, Fred would argue in his column, in fact, he does in his article, that it's unlikely to bring about regime change because for the reason that the Ayatollahs are much more likely to use force, that really what the what happened in the Soviet Union was a loss of will by Gorbachev to bring, as he said, to, to use force against civilians and that the IRGC has that will, the Ayatollah has that will. And also he points out that the... Red Army and the KGB were able to separate themselves from the Communist Party, whereas the IRGC and the and the clerical regime in Iran are not going to separate themselves from the revolution. They're, they live or die with it. So it's unlikely that the regime will collapse. But despite those differences, the policy choices, I mean, foreign policy is complicated, but it's also not. And the policy choices are the same ones that we had in the Cold War, which is detente, containment, or rollback. And Reagan did say, our, our, my strategy for the Cold War is we win, you lose. But that was a little bit rhetoric. I don't think anybody thought the regime was going to was going to collapse the way it did. They pu- they pursued a policy of rollback because they wanted to advance freedom and they wanted to stop the Soviet Union from undermining freedom and advancing its interests and overthrowing regimes around the world. If we follow a victory strategy that doesn't and likely will not end up uh, in regime change, but it will starve them of the resources to support Hezbollah, the resources to support Hamas, the resources to support the Houthis, the resources to threaten Israel. And in Iran that is under pressure and focused on its own survival, just like the Soviet Union, is a lot better Iran than the one that exists today. I Actually, you know, I'm, I'm willing to buy that argument. The only problem for me is our ability to sustain it. You know, we now, and, and, and I will say this, you know, I I completely disagree. There are those who look like to look back at history with rose-colored glasses and suggest that there was so much consensus, you know, <laughs> about foreign policy. I mean, you and I remember very clearly working in the Senate what it was like and how people were. Well, Reagan famously said in 1992 at his convention speech, "I heard the other party talking about how we were we brought down the Soviet Union. Who do they mean by we?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there wasn't that much consensus back then. You're no, right. No, there were never. There never was consensus. But now I think that we've got an even more sort of toxic element in our disagreements because not only do we disagree about foreign policy, but we're actually having um, we're having arguments in which adversaries pick sides. So we've got people who are actually arguing on behalf of the Iranians. We didn't have that many people arguing on behalf of the Soviets back in the day. Oh, but I think they did. Oh, I, I, I mean, well, in different ways. So like the so just like Fred described this the strategy towards the Iran uh, towards the Europeans that the Iranians are playing. The Soviets did the exact same thing. And they also, you know, when Reagan deployed INF intermediate missiles to Europe, oh my gosh, he's going to start a nuclear war. The, the world is ending. We're going to provoke the Soviet Union into a, into a cataclysmic conflict. They said the same thing about Reagan that they're saying about Trump today. Okay, but we did not have we did not have presidents who wholesale said that they were going to do new deals with the Soviets. All right, you know what? Let, let's I'm killing this analogy. Let's <laughs> let's stop comparing that and no, say, and, and, and I let me make my analogy. point, which I think you which which I think you agree with. Yeah. Which is that we now have a problem where if Donald Trump is not reelected in 2020, which is certainly a real possibility, then we are going to have a Democratic president who has pledged to reinstate the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. For the Iranians, that does not fuel a containment or a rollback strategy. 
all it fuels is a uh, is a wait and see strategy. The same experience we had with Iraq during the 1990s, which is wait and see, is a very good strategy for bad guys in the Middle East because our ability to sustain a sanctions regime against a country like Iran is very limited. That's number one. Number two, we've got the other side promising that all you need to do is stick with me, and I'll be your guy again. And Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Israel, you guys go drop dead. But, you know, Iran, I'm back for you. So that's very that that's another thing that's going to undermine our policy. Well, that's but that's a perennial problem in foreign policy is the sustaining of a of an approach. So I'm not willing to give up the Cold War analogy. Uh, they had they had uh, detente, and then we we had the Carter administration came in and sort of started uh, undermining uh, our uh, our the regimes around the world that supported us and were fighting uh, pushing against communism. And the Soviets had a massive expansion, and then uh, the invasion of Afghanistan happened, and he had to sort of pull back from his strategy. And then Reagan came in, so we you know we had detente, we had containment, and then Reagan came in with rollback, which was unique. You could have argued in 1984, well, if Reagan doesn't win, we're going to go back to detente and all of this is going to be lost, and you would have been right. Uh, so the answer is, if we want a really tough policy on Iran, we're probably going to need another second Trump term. <laughs> <laughs> so I know how you're voting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, that, that's, that's worrisome to yeah. everybody is, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, that, and I mean, that's a problem. With detente America. is not going to work. We know we, we're not sure whether rollback's going to work. We know detente failed under because Obama tried it. Um, I don't think the Democrats think that that was failure. I think the Democrats still argue that was success. That's what my friends who do Middle East on the, you know, on the left argue. That was a good policy. Our policy now is a dangerous policy. We're headed towards war, and we should definitely have a detente policy with the Iranians. And then we should pretend they're peaceful, not doing anything. Peaceful coexistence. Yeah, exactly. Peaceful coexistence. So, all right. Go. Well, we are going to agree to disagree on this um, because... No, we agree more than we disagree. What? Do we? <laughs> all right. We're going to leave this for now. Thanks to everybody for listening. A special thanks to Fred for joining us. And uh, and Mark and I are going to be back to bicker about whether everything in the world now looks like the Soviet-U.S. battle of the 20th century. Or, in fact, there might be some differences. There are many differences. <laughs> Thank God. Agreement but at last. But some things stay the same. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Weinsett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. And that's Mark with a C because Mark with a K Thiessen is a reporter for the AP in Alaska, and he hates getting my hate tweets. Poor Mark Thiessen in Alaska. Please rate and review the podcast if you like the show. Please subscribe, share it with a friend, share it with your family, share it with your pets, and comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening.